It is my privilege to welcome up Rick Pratt. So I was in the first service. Great sermon, Rick. They, they need to hear this. They need to hear this. So Rick Pratt, our pastor of Congregational Life. Well, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> anyway, it's a privilege to get to come and, and read and look at God's word together. Um, there, there's a lot of announcement that Chad did, just gave us. I hope that sinks in. I hope you're, you're listening and thinking about ways you can be a part of bringing stuff for the, the cram the crib and ways you can help out with Family Promise and, and ways you can come and help us eat ice cream on the 16th. So uh, lots of opportunities, but the summer's kind of crazy. People come and go and but. Uh, Please listen to those and take notes. So, uh, let's, let's go before the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, what we just sung. <laughs> we, we need you uh, every moment of every hour, and even if we don't realize that it's true. And so we come today to sing and to confess those truths, to ask that you would continue to remind us of that and, and remind us of your sustaining power within us that you have saved us, you have made us yours, and now you are at work in our lives, forming the life of Christ. And so we are grateful that you have done that, and you are doing that, and you will do that. You will complete that work. And so we rehearse this truth today as we come and worship. I pray now that you would use your word, your spirit, you would use us as your body together as we lock arms together to walk with you, to continue to grow us into people and a body that looks more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to look at 16 through 26. The last couple weeks have had a chance to look at the first half of this chapter and we've continued to look at the in that this freedom that we have in Christ has been kind of the primary emphasis and now Paul continues on to lay a basis for how we live that out in the spirit of God his presence within us so this is the word of God to us verses 16 through 26 Galatians 5 but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As I mentioned last week, the first section of this really deals with the freedom that the gospel brings. And it's freedom against legalism that we have to maintain certain laws or regulations to, to earn our, fa- our, our favor before God. That 
that what Christ has done is permanent, certain. It's what he's provided for us. And we're free from any of anything else that would be added to that. And he writes to them to to say, you don't be enslaved again to these rules that people are bringing back in. At the same time, we're free from living just for ourselves. That we don't have to just be driven by our own flesh, our own desires to be enslaved to those. We're free from that. We're actually freed to love. We're freed to serve. And we're oriented around that truth. And we're filled with the very presence of God to energize and to enable us to do that. To actually be free from ourselves and free to love Him. And so freedom is a primary theme as we come to this section. The question we want to ask is... How do we do this? What's the truth that the Christian lives in and upon that will enable him to do this? How do we do this? What's the formula? What is involved in this? Well, there are no formulas. There are no secrets exactly. How do we live successfully in rejecting legalism and license? How is it we can live from being enslaved to our own passions, our own desires, the insidious nature of the self that wants to take over and will ultimately will destroy us and destroy the community in which we live. How can we be free from kind of both ditches in our lives, from creating our own laws and rules at the same time, from living in spite of the ones that God has established? Because if it's just left to us, right? If it's just something we have to work harder or something we have to do in and of ourselves that originates in us, we're doomed to failure. There's nothing we can do to truly live this out. We don't have it. We couldn't save ourselves and we certainly can't continue to sustain ourselves and growth in this salvation, our relationship with God. We can't live in that way apart from help, apart from something that he will provide for us. He has placed in us the want to at the same time. He has placed in us the living source of his strength and his power that will enable us. And this is the topic, this idea, this truth of the Christian life that God has placed his presence within those who are his, those who belong to him, to enable them to live out this freedom in such a way that will honor him, in such a way that will reflect who he is, in such a way that the fruit of his very presence will grow in our lives and not the flesh taking over or destroying us. And so this is the attention that Paul wants them to see. He wants us to see this morning that God points to us. How do we live this life He certainly has regenerated us, those who trusted in Christ and has given us new tastes and new inclinations. At the same time, he has promised to sustain us, to enable us to continue to walk in our relationships with each other, in our relationship with him, and to not take on the form that allow the flesh or our own selfish desires to drive us, but to actually grow the fruit of the Spirit, to actually take on the shape and form of Christ, which at the same time will affect the way that we relate to Him and the way we relate to each other. This is the topic that Paul is addressing in this section. This last week I had a phone call that I had to make. We had a a bill. Somebody had charged us something which I felt wasn't fair, it wasn't right, and there was a mistake made. And I thought pretty easily I could make a phone call and explain to them their mistake and they would easily and quickly credit to me, to us, the the money that they had taken from us from this mistake that they had made. And I went in. It was a legitimate thing. This would be simple. I'll just kind of, you know, real kindly and in a loving manner, let them know their mistake and, and make sure they get this righted. 
I went in. It was legitimate. It was what I wanted. But somewhere in the middle of the conversation, it began to shift, okay? What I thought would be simply and easily undone, I found was not simply or easily undone. In fact, I found in the middle of this that nothing was going to change. I was not going to get the credit. I felt like I deserved what I thought this, my desire to say, you know, you need to take this right. You need to take my interest into considerations. You need to do this. And along the lines, as I kind of went from one person and then to another person, something happened in me. And my kind, sweet, loving, fruit, spirit-filled life and attitude and voice began to change and shift. And it began to elevate and it kind of intensified. And I began to pull out all the stops because my desire to be right in this case, begin to take over and rule over my kind, loving self. Have you ever had that kind of experience? By the end, good, thank you, I've seen a few smiles there, I realized there was something going on in me. There was a desire, not a bad one, that this would be made right, but that desire began to rule. And as it began to rule, it began to take over and begin to turn me into something other than I had wanted to be. And by the end of that conversation, I'm not proud to say I was very ashamed at some of my behavior on that, that phone call. Now, there are other stories I could tell you, but I don't need to tell you any other stories because you have stories yourselves. We all know the battle between the flesh and the spirit between things that we want and desire, which are fine and dandy, until they begin to rule in our lives before they begin to take over us. And as they begin to do that, they begin to, to drive us down directions and places that we don't want to go. This war, this battle between flesh and spirit is what Paul presents. And yet he presents to us a way that we can live and deal with and not allow the flesh to rule us, but indeed be ruled by guided by, led by the Spirit of God, the very presence of God. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to look at the nature of this battle. We see that there is a real battle There's a between flesh and spirit. We want to look at the offspring of each, of the flesh and the produce of the spirit, what comes out of that and why he gives us these lists. And then we want to look at how it is that we can live this out in our lives. But before we, we go on, as we think about growth in Christ, as we think about the spirit-filled life or the, the, the fruit of the spirit being produced in us or growth and sanctification, a couple of things I want to lay down to kind of frame our conversation so that you hear what I'm trying to say and not what I'm not trying to say. There's a number of different ways that this can be understood in terms of what it means to grow or how it is we grow as Christians, how it is that this life of God takes rules and then leads in us. And there's a couple things. First, this is not a message or a call or command to just try harder. This is not a self-help kind of message. It's not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not a, a power of positive thinking kind of message that we have here. This is not a man-centered message. It's not something we do, because if you're like me, I have tried to do this. And the truth is, it's not something that we do. It's not primarily us. It's not our strength and our power, nor are we passive in this process. It's not a let go and let God. And I sit back and just let God do what he wants to do in the sense I have no participation in the process. That's not true either. God is the primary one, yes, but we participate in the process of growth, in the process of seeing his life formed in us, in the process of seeing fruit grow in and through us. So it's not 
we primarily that, that bring that about, nor is it that we're passive in this. We work and he works. Of course, it's his work that's primary. And nor are there certain techniques or spiritual kinds of experiences that if you had them, somehow the hold or the control of the flesh would somehow be completely eradicated or gone. That's not true either as much as we wish being Americans that there were a, a pill or something we could buy or some sort of, you know, program I could go through that would completely take care of this. But that's not true. That this is a lifetime struggle. This is a battle that we will experience until eternity, until heaven. There are reprieves to be sure that God gives us by his grace. But this battle between flesh and spirit is characteristic of the Christian life as long as we live here. And there is hope, though, of the future. And so as Paul writes, we want to get that straight, okay? That there, it's not something primarily we do, God does. We are not passive, though. And there's no real kind of secret or technique to this. It's a, it's a part of understanding and living by faith the truth that God gives to us. So we see there's a setting that this is placed in. We understand that Paul describes in verse 17, he says that the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh, that these are opposed to one another. And you see that there is a battle that's a part of this, that the, the setting, the context is one of war. It's one of a battle that we face. And so it calls us to have a wartime mentality. It calls us to think like this and to remember, oh, yeah, when I experience that, I'm in the middle of a battle. This is real. The flesh and the spirit are real. There's a real enemy that's operating in the world that uses my own flesh, my own desires against me for his causes. There's a, there are real principalities and powers outside. There's a real flesh and spirit within us. And there's a battle that wages within each one of us that has real effects in the way that we live and the way that we think and our attitudes and our behaviors and phone calls with people when you're trying to get from them the money credited back to you. It's real. There's real impact there. The imagery is throughout. He's talked about the opportunity of the flesh as a base of operations. There's military imagery throughout this. So there's a real battle that's, that's there. And in this, we see the battle is between flesh and spirit. I've already read this passage of desires against of the flesh against the spirit and vice versa. And we see this desire here in general is not a bad thing that we would desire something. But in this case, the desire of the flesh is what we want to see. The phrase desire of the flesh is is used three times in this passage. And it tells us something about what's going on with the flesh. It's something that is driving us. Desire here is really an inordinate or excessive or illicit desire. It's a desire that wants to take over is what it is. It's a desire that wants to rule in our lives. It might be legitimate when it starts, but as it begins to take form and shape, it begins to want to take over in our lives. We see this image in a similar way in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve was observing the forbidden fruit in this conversation with Satan, with the serpent. We see that her desire began to take over. It was a desire that wanted to rule and goes in opposition to God. It's ultimately a, seeks fulfillment outside of God's provision. And it goes against what God had established as right and wrong. So this is a desire. It says, I want what I want at all costs, no matter what God says or what anybody else. And of course, the flesh, this desire is a part of this selfish, self-centered aspect of our lives that's 
been crucified, we'll talk about it in a minute, it's dead, but it still is an operation. And the degree to which we give it power, it will yield that within our lives. It will wield that rather in our lives and continue to guide us in that way if we follow it. This flesh is against and in opposition to God. But this desire of the flesh is ultimately, it's a demand it's a demand that seek. It's a desire that demands to be fulfilled and to be gratified no matter the cost. And it's a desire that will take each one of us and will seek to enthrone self as God. It seeks to place ourselves as God till we determine what right and wrong is and what good is, what isn't good. And so it seeks to enthrone self, but at the very same time, it enslaves self to the same very desires it wants to enthrone self. And so we find there the paradox of if we're seeking to be God, we actually find ourselves to be enslaved by those desires. And the enemy operates in and through the desires of our flesh. And that's what Paul wants to see. You see, these are at odds with one another. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, the desires driving against each other. And the spirit here is the very presence of God. It's his life that lives within us. It's regenerated. It's opened your eyes to see and given us the want to as the very Spirit now indwells in us, will create and form the image of Christ and in great hope will bring about fruit in our lives. So this battle is real. It's there. It's the ongoing process. The Spirit and the flesh are natural and unending enemies. And we experience this. We know this. We taste this. I remember the first time I... I heard the passage from, from Romans chapter 7 where, where Paul is talking about struggling with sin. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do the very things I want to do. And the thing as a young man going, that's exactly how I feel. And I still feel that. I read that. I go, that's it? Right there. I read that and I go, yes, that's the reality of this war, this, this battle within each one of us. It's a struggle that is characteristic of the Christian life, of faith, at the same time, we continue to, to go in and out of intensity. Some seasons it's lessened and other seasons it's more and greater and more intense. And so we need to be careful of teaching or of instruction that somehow says that we can eliminate this permanently now, especially if there's some sort of financial cost attached to it. It won't go away. It is a lifetime. While we're here, we will struggle in this. It doesn't sound like great news, but there's better news coming. At the same time, we need to be careful with complacency that it would lure us into thinking that there really is no battle, that I'm doing just fine or I really don't need any help or I can take a break or take a day off from the battle because that won't take us down a very good road either. If you want to see a case study of taking a day off, you can read Second Samuel chapter 11 where David decides to take a day off and instead of going to war, he decides to hang out on his own rooftop and you see the story there of the sin with Bathsheba and he follows down that road. And so that's what happens when we take a day off. There's a struggle. It's a daily one, an ongoing one, moment by moment. We need Christ. We've already sung about that. We don't get to take a day off. But he energizes, he empowers us through. So we see there's a real battle and you see that. At the same time, Paul says, I want to show you, though, there's a battle. I want to show you the offspring of the flesh, desires of the flesh, and the produce of the Spirit. You need to see this. And you ask the question, why does He need to show us? Isn't it obvious? He says, yeah, it is obvious. But you need to see what they are. Because you need to see what each one grows and where it goes, okay? That the, what the flesh does when it continues to grow over the course of time and where the Spirit leads 
You see, the flesh and the spirit, the life of the self-life and the life of God have diverging trajectories, okay? They go opposite directions, even though at times it might appear that they're similar. Paul says, don't confuse one for the other. They are completely different. They have different trajectories and they have different destinations. Don't be confused. Remember, this is where the flesh goes. This is where the spirit goes. This is, where the, this is what it looks like. And these two lists are set side by side for this purpose that we can look at. And he writes, he gives us these, this list of 15 works of the flesh. And we're not going to work through each one of them today. Obviously, we don't have time. But this is what I think is important for us to see. It's like there's an implied question as he sets them side by side. This list, sexual morality and envy and hatred and all these kinds of things right next to the fruit of the Spirit. And the implied question is this. Which list would you like to characterize your life? Which one do you want? If you were choosing, which one would you want to describe your life? you want the works of the flesh or would you like the fruit of the Spirit? Which one do you want? And of course, as you sit here, you go, of course, I know which one I want. It's, it's obvious which ones I want. And he, he places for us that, that picture to call us, say, yeah, this is, this is where this goes. These are the ends of each one of these. And this, this first list that he gives us, 15 characteristics, qualities, characteristics of the, the works of the flesh that come. And there's, there's 15 that we see here. But he opens it up with this phrase. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're evident. And he gives us a whole list of them. And by the way, there's not just 15 of them. He ends with, and there's a bunch more of these. There could be innumerable nuns, but I'm, none, ones of these. But I'm going to stop right here with these 15. But they're evident. And the question is, in what way are they self-evident? How are they evident? In what way are they plain? How do you know what they are? And he says it's this. He didn't tell us, but you can read through this. Because as you compare it with the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit is this. That they're self-evident in this way. You'll know a work of the flesh because it's a desire that has no restraint. That the work of the flesh is ultimately, the trajectory is this. It is desire without restraint. It's desire that takes on a life of its own. It's a desire that will rule the person and will take on a life so there's no restraint whatsoever. That's how you know a work of the flesh. Nothing to restrain it. Nothing to hold it down or for it to be subjected to. And the effects of this are destructive and this work of the flesh ultimately reproduces itself at its core. It grows itself. You want to know what it's going to become? Look at what it is. It's a selfish desire without restraint. It will grow into something, a kind of animal. And that's where it goes. It's the direction that it's sent. Because desire itself is not an evil thing. We're given desires. But desires become evil at the point at which they begin to rule, at the point at which they want to take over, and they're not subject to anything else. They're, they must be ruled by a greater desire. They must be ruled by a greater love. And the way we understand desires, that's to be ruled by God Himself, to be brought in subjection under His Lordship, His rule in our lives and so our desires are good only and when they are brought under his control otherwise it will only prove to be cultivated and generated by the flesh and will lead us down a road to death and so as it takes a life of its own on we recognize that that's that's where it goes that's the trajectory in that so in the end each produces something 
the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, but they're clearly different. And Paul says, I want you to see this. Don't confuse one for the other. Because at certain stages, they might look a lot alike. You wonder, how can that be? And this is an interesting thing. Let's just use an example here. If you look at the first one in each of the list, and you look at sexual morality is first in this list, and you look in the first of the list of the fruit of the Spirit, and you see love. See, our culture gets confused sometimes. We get confused sometimes of the nature of those two qualities. And we get confused and we're given to somehow our culture to confuse sexuality with love. And somehow as to think that the two are the same. Now, they might say, well, they're not the same, but there's not exactly a way to distinguish one from the other. And so the confusion here is they appear to be very similar. We want to equate sex and love in our society. They appear to be similar. In, the, in any relationship, it might be confusing. Okay, I remember a few years ago when I was a younger man and dating my wife, and it, there's emotion there, and there's romance, and there's sexual interest, there's drive. That's a part of life. Of course it is, but don't want to confuse one for the other. Because the minute we begin to go down this road, you realize that sexual... Desire, ultimately, as it takes over, is a completely different entity than love. They are not the same. And if you follow sexual desire to its end, it will become an animal. It will become destructive. It will destroy people. And it has and does if it's not restrained. If it's not brought under the Lordship of Christ, it does damage. But where does love lead? Love, love leads to a completely different place. It cares for the other. It's selfless. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't harm. It helps and grows. And only a sexual desire is brought under love, under the ruler, ruling lordship of Christ. Can it have a place in a marriage, in a relationship to God? Only as it's ruled by a greater desire to follow in obedience to God, the one who's created both. And so we see that there's different trajectories and we understand that we don't want to confuse the two because we can. But Paul says this is where this goes, the flesh, and this is where the the fruit of the Spirit goes. This is what it looks like. We also look at this list and we see that it's not just kind of the sensual pleasures or the sensual issues, sensual issues that cause the harm or the damage. You'll find that of the 15, the list here, that eight of them had to do with the relationships. Look in the middle with me. You, know, you see the first one, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery. And then jump to enmity. And we have a list here. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. What does that describe? That describes a kind of life that will undermine and destroy relationships. Indeed, those characteristics are toxic to community and will not grow community. And so we see that it's not just the sensual pleasures that, are, that we see that do harm, but we see relational uh, sin here. We see that the, the flesh comes about and destroys relationships. And indeed, throughout this letter, you see that, that there's harm done within their own community, indeed within ours, as the works of the flesh would manifest themselves in relationships. They will not grow community. They rather are destructive to it. But then as we compare the two, we see that with Paul, that the, that the works of the flesh, ultimately where it goes is it enslaves. But the fruit of the Spirit takes us to different places as people. As human beings, it takes us to freedom and flourishing. That it gives us freedom 
enables us to live freely and enables us to flourish as people, to know what that really looks like. See, unstrained, unrestrained desire, man-centered desire versus God-oriented desire. In this list of the, the fruit of the Spirit, there's nine fruits or one fruit with nine different aspects to it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, there could be others. We could understand that. We could, could be a sermon, a message on each one of these. It's not, don't have time, obviously, for that today. But there's a cluster here of these graces. This is what happens. This is what grows. These grow in the person whose life is, is brought in by, tapped into the vine, and this is produced. So the question that Paul has as he presents these two lists and this one He asked the question, or implied in here, we might ask is, how does a truly free person live? How does a truly free person behave? One who is not restrained, not by his own flesh, but one who is free to not live by the flesh, but actually to live according to what God calls. And these are lists of that freedom, or what it looks like truly to be free, to actually to be able to love, to be joyful and to be peaceful, a free person not bound to his flesh, is free to do these things, to live this out. But at the same time, there's a picture here of flourishing. There's a picture of what it means to truly be a human as we live these out. As Paul concludes these nine virtues, these characteristics with this phrase, against such thing there is no law. It's an interesting statement. There is no law against these nine. What's he getting at there? What does it mean that there is no law? Well, it means this. If the works of the flesh are identified by their lack of restraint, okay? No restraint. We see that. That's how we understand what they are. They're evident in that respect. The fruit of the Spirit is identified by the irrelevance of restraint. It's not necessary to restrain these. A couple ways to understand this phrase. Against this thing, there is no law. They cannot be legislated. That their nature cannot be commanded. You can't command a person to be joyful. It's not something that you can, if you will, legislate and command them to do in that respect. But rather, they're grown. Rather, they, they come out of being tapped into the right source. They can't be forced. They must be grown from the right source. But at the same time, that you can't you can't command them. But also, there's no limit. You can't restrain them. Understood properly, there's no limit to what it means to love. You can't condemn a person for being too loving or too joyful or too peaceful. Now, now granted, that person might be annoying to you if indeed they are joyful and you go, stop it, quit it. But that's their problem. That's your problem, not their problem. The way that that goes. You can't, there's no need to restrain. There's no end. There's no limit to what it truly means to be, to, to carry these out and to live these out. If I can read a quote from a commentator, F.F. Bruce said this about the about, about these. He writes says, Paul does not simply mean that the nine virtues which make up the fruit of the Spirit are not forbidden by law. He means that when these qualities are in view we are in a sphere with which the law has nothing to do. Law may prescribe certain forms of conduct to pro- prohibit others. But love, joy, peace, and the rest cannot be legally enforced. A vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. Being a good British 
individual, but they are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which forms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's, but is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as the result of what Christ has already done. And you see what he's saying there is it's not forced. It's grown in us. And what it really means to flourish as a person, as a Christian, what it means to really be free is seen in the list of these. That the fruit of the Spirit is evidence of this freedom in Christ. And it's a picture of what it means to truly be human. What it truly means to be alive in Christ. These are not dependent upon circumstances, or rather, they, they're the result of being connected with the right source. So love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness come from being connected to the one who is those things. And the one in whom, through whom he wants to form Christ in us. To actually bring those about, to grow those qualities or characteristics in our lives. Turn with me to, to uh, Jeremiah chapter 17. There's a, a picture here I want us to see. Jeremiah chapter 17. Five through eight. We have a picture here of the two different trajectories. The, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, if you will, in the Old Testament. What, what's the source and where one goes and where the other one, what it looks like. Verse five of chapter 17 Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, shall not see any good. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land. Do you see that? Cursed is the one who trusts in man. This is what he looks like. If you trust in yourself, this is where this goes. The works of the flesh is this, dead. It's a, it's a you know, this... Um, wilderness area. And then, verse 7, Blessed is the man, rather, who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends its roots out by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, nor does it cease to bear fruit. You see that picture there, the one who trusts in the Lord, whose source is the Lord, who has tapped into the vine who's indeed stayed there and re- received the, the, the strength that comes through him. It's not anxious in your drought, nor does he cease to bear fruit. We see this gives us a visual picture of these two trajectories. That the fruit of the Spirit is a picture of Christ being formed in us. The freedom of Christ living these things out. And it's a picture of what it really means to be human. But then the question how do we do this? Paul says there's a battle, yes. A real struggle that goes on our lives during this life, but it's not hopeless battle, it's one that yields something. And we see the trajectories that this goes, and it's a trajectory that one goes to death and destruction, the other one goes to life, and one is the sourced by God himself, one is sourced by our own flesh that's there. But then how do we do this? How do we live this out? How do we live in the battle to see fruit produced and grown in our lives and not the works of the flesh. Certainly there are moments we wonder if it's even possible that we would be characterized by the fruit of the the Spirit that's there. And we wonder about that. But the the truth yet woven through this passage is the truth that God's presence is within us, indwelling us day in and day out to experience the transformation 
of this gospel, this great message. If you look with me, verse 16, I'm going to focus on verses 24 and 25, but throughout this is this reality of God indwelling His people. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This picture of walking by the Spirit is living in and through. It's a command, and it's in the present tense, meaning that we do this day in and day out by the Spirit of God, remembering appropriating the reality of His presence within us. But then in verse 19, we're called, or in 18, we're called, to. it says, if you're led by the Spirit, here we have a picture of the Spirit leading us and guiding us and impelling us and calling us to, to live out what we know, what we really want, and empower us there. But then in verses 24 and 25, we see kind of the basics. If you want to boil it down, of what it means to live for God's Spirit, for His life to dwell in us and to live through us, to empower us in the midst of the struggle, to do that, to grow and see produce fruit produced, we see this, 24 and 25, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In the most basic form here, we have this truth that we walk in, that we live in. There's no formula Okay, we don't get just, there's no formula here. There's no secret here, but there's truth that we live in and through. And that's what Paul wants them to see and to get a hold of in the midst of the battle that we do deal with between flesh and spirit. And there's two parts to this. The first is in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. And it's a reminder that those who belong to Christ, those who are his, have made a decisive action in the past, that being a part of Christ is to have crucified the flesh, to count it as being dead, to consider it to be dead because it has. It's what he has done to us. And the second half is to live unto God. So the first half is to crucify, to put to death, to mortify is the good old uh, theologian term. And the second half is to live actively and to keep in step with the spirit. Well, what's it mean to crucify? How do we crucify that? It's to consider it as dead. It's to, to count it as dead. Earlier in Galatians, Paul uses a phrase. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's referring to something that had been done. It was a past event that continued to affect him. In this case, this is something, by the way, that we do to ourselves. We have been crucified, but it's an ongoing action that we continue to live in light of, that we live as those who have been crucified, who have died to the flesh by being united with Christ, by being within Him. And so that's the picture here to have died with that. And throughout the Gospels, there's this language that Jesus uses and those who would follow Him. He calls them to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow me. There's a picture there of crucifixion. And in Luke, he says to take up your cross daily, that it's an ongoing process that we live in light of, that we die to ourselves, we recognize and we live to him. And so dying to self, crucifying the flesh is an ongoing process that we do in light of what Christ has already done for us. And John Stott describes the process in these three kind of phrases which are helpful for us. He says that the crucifixion needs to be pitiless. That we crucify our flesh, that it needs to be pitiless, recognizing that it doesn't deserve to live. Recognizing that it's our enemy. Recognizing that as friendly and pleasant that it might seem, that where it leads is death. 
And so we crucify it in a pitiless, in a pitiless way. But then he says that it's a painful process. That putting to death the self-life is painful. We, we become pretty good friends with the flesh. Pretty amenable with the, the flesh. And so it becomes difficult and painful to do that and to part company in that way. And no half measures will do. It's required that, that we do that, but it's a painful thing. But then finally he says that it needs to be a decisive action. We can't play around with it. Either we are or we're not. Either we crucified or we're not. Either it's dead or it's not. But it's an ongoing process. We live day in and day out, crucifying the flesh, putting it to death. And he writes in this, John Stott, that we must fix it, the flesh, to the cross, determined to keep it there, determined to keep it there until it expires. We must declare war on it. We are given though we are given to resume negotiations. And so this ongoing process of dying to self, crucifying it and putting it to death. But then we put, we live in the Spirit. That's the, the, the one side. We put it to death, but in verse 25, we see we're called to live by the Spirit. Okay, we don't just crucify, but we actually live in light of, of this. And in verse, we live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So our life comes from this. It comes from a different source. It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God living and dwelling in each one of us. And it says we are called to, to keep in step with the Spirit. If we will have a promise that God lives in us, the Spirit dwells us, and then the command built on the promise is, let us then keep in step. Let's live in light of that truth, in light of that promise that God is in us. Chad used the imagery earlier when he was talking about the affirmation of faith, of linking arms with each other and this keeping in step with the spirit has that imagery of linking arms with one another and marching getting in line getting in order and following the spirit actually being with him and following his lead and that's the command that's what we do those are decisions we make by his power to step in line to crucify in one case and then in this case to live in light of that to step in in and be drawn up into rank with Him, affecting our attitudes, our conduct, and our lifestyle. You see what we have here is teaching. It's truth. God indwells us, and then a command that follows it. Fall in line with this. Live in light of this truth that He's promised to be with you. John Calvin writes this. He says, In his usual way, Paul draws exhortation out of doctrine. The death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. The death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. If God's Spirit lives in us, then let Him govern all of our actions. Let Him govern all of our actions. If He lives in us. It reminds me of a question I used to ask when I worked with college students. I used to ask this question. We talked about this life of, of living in the Spirit of God and allowing Him to empower us. If there was a per- person who professed to be a a believer, but whose life didn't necessarily reflect that, would ask the question, is the Spirit of God, is God merely resident in your life or is He president in your life? It's a little corny, I know, but it kind of gets the point across. Is He resident or is He president? Is He living in your life or is He Lord of your life? And Paul is saying here is this. He's like, if He lives in you, if His sources comes from you, then, then let Him rule. How can this be a case, a situation in which he is resident and not present? How can he live in you if he's not the Lord of your life? What we need to understand is he will be Lord. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So dying to self, 
crucifying the flesh, living to him, is the way we participate in this process of seeing Christ formed in us, of seeing fruit grow within us that is sourced by him. It doesn't make any sense that we would live in him and not allow him to lead and to guide us, but to participate by using, by exercising our will and submitting ourselves to him, surrendering him and to find that he at that point is willing, able to continue to convince us of his ability to show and demonstrate his power sourced within us throughout the course of our lives to deal with our flesh and to grow in us Christ himself and those qualities how do we participate? I'm going to conclude with this, this quote from J.I. Packer. He says it as well as anyone. What's the steps? What do, what do we do? What steps do we take right here and right now? There's a few things. How do we participate in this? And he gives us a couple of ways to think about this, which are helpful and will leave us with. He writes this. Yet we need to remember two things, both of which sometimes get forgotten. The first is that the Spirit works through means. He operates in our lives through means. Again, He's not passive. He works through the objective means of grace, which mean, namely, biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, the Lord's Supper, and the like. And you see, these means of grace are ways that we come and we hear the truth and we remember again the doctrine that we live in and we walk upon and how do we keep in the step with the Spirit, it's by walking in this truth. But then he goes on, he says, through these means, but then with them through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change. Okay, so we ask questions, we engage this, and we hear this, and we ask questions of ourselves, and we ask God to do that. We open ourselves up to change, namely, thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what's in one, one's heart with others, and weighing the response that they make. The Spirit shows His power in us, not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions or impressions or prophecies which serve up ready-made insights on a plate, so to speak, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as, as we go along. What he's saying there is that we engage in that through objective means by here, by worshiping, by reading scripture, by praying, but then by asking questions, by engaging our will and saying, what do I do about this? What do I need to do? Engaging relationships with others who will help speak into our lives, truly asking questions about where we are, truly asking the spirit to open us up to what he is doing in us. Asking questions like these, where am I now from breaking and breaking from the flesh? What ways and what areas of my life have I become very friendly with the way that the works of the flesh operate in me? Have I nailed it to the cross, committed to leaving it there? Am I open to correction from God's Spirit? Is my life open to other, another person to speak into my life? Am I following the lead of God's Spirit, falling in line with Him? Or am I following myself? Or am I using my freedom as a base of operation? As Paul, he writes to them, he goes, there's a source. There's hope that the gospel brings. Yeah, in the midst of battle, yes, in the midst of, of understanding these two trajectories and where they lead. But the growth comes as we crucify the flesh. And as we trust ourselves to him that he would provide for us. And I love, as Tyler read from John this morning, that if you're in the vine, where the branch, he is the vine and where the branches, that 
that, that, that it's through that source that we will find life and no other source. We truly learn how to live freely and flourish as human beings and see his fruit produced within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that this truth, uh, help us to walk in it, help us to live it out, to, to truly believe it, to put to death the, the flesh and the desires there, not that they would not rule over us, but that you would. Uh, we confess the ways that we have been friendly with our own fleshly desires and pray that you would continue to grow us as yours to trust in you. We need you to carry this on in the midst of the battle. It's real. Father, would you at the same time we help us in our congregation? There's many needs that we have, health needs. I think of Stephen Johnson's mother's this fall. Would you heal her with Pam Zicker's sister Val as she is grieving the loss of this this um, child that she sought to adopt? And would you be with her as well? Be with Michelle Beard and her father and Dave Upchurch's mom as well. We pray for these and many others. Think about the, the youth of grace, the Barnabas folks, as they'll be taken off this next week and use them, fill them, strengthen them for your work, that they indeed would, would be able to reflect you in this, in this place that, at Barnabas. So use them in that way. Father, help us to continue to, to live out the truth of this gospel you've saved us and that you're continuing to empower us to live it out for a world that desperately needs to see in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand now for the benediction.